Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone and welcome to the history of Russia. I'm Damon and this is episode 61, The Not-So-Jolly Company. Thanks for listening in. So, in the last episode, we got to May 1730. We covered the romantic machinations or machinations at court, the short illness and death of Peter II, the Supreme Privy Council's failed attempt to control Russia's destiny, and the return of the Miroslavsky Romanovs in the shape of the new Empress Anna Ivanovna. This week we'll be doing a recap of Anna's life before she became the Empress, and then we'll be delving into the early years of her reign, taking a look at the handful of men who would be her most trusted advisers stroke confidants, and looking at her character, attitudes, likes and dislikes, and how in general she liked to amuse herself. And the traditional view, by the way, is that she was controlled by foreigners, and that she was strong-willed, cruel, vulgar, vindictive, spoilt, immature and eccentric. But is that the whole picture and or a fair assessment? And then finally, we'll take a very brief look to see what's been going on across the rest of Europe, mainly because very soon there will be an awful lot going on across the rest of Europe. OK, that's the intro done. Now let's crack on and do some history of Russia. So, Anna Ivanovna was born in 1693 and she was the fourth of the five daughters born to Tsar Ivan V and his wife Praskovia Saltikova. Well, that's the official version. Ivan, as we know, had significant mental and physical issues. And whilst he was alive, it was rumoured that none of the daughters were his. However, 
As the years went by, and each of the three surviving daughters grew up with recognisable Romanov traits and looks, the rumours subsided and then eventually disappeared. Ivan died in 1696 when Anna was only three, and so most of her childhood and all of her teenage years were dominated by her mother, Praskovia. And Praskovia was an interesting character. She had been chosen to be Tsar Ivan's bride by his sister Sofia for one reason and one reason only, to provide the Miloslavsky Romanovs with an heir before Ivan's half-brother, Peter the Great, came of age and potentially made things difficult. However, and as we know, that scheme hadn't entirely gone to plan. For five long years, nothing happened. And then suddenly in 1689, Praskovia was pregnant, right at the time when Peter was starting to make things awkward for Sophia. The trouble was, for Sophia, that the baby was a girl, and over the next five years, four more daughters would be born. But all of that was a moot point, because by that time, Sophia was in a monastery and Peter was in charge. OK, Damon, that's all well and good, but we sort of knew all of that. You're going round the houses a bit. What's your point? Well, that's a good question. And my point is that these events were, to say the least, character-forming for Praskovia, and they had to a knock-on impact upon Anna and her sisters. Praskovia had been married off to a man with serious issues. She had failed to supply a male heir. Rumours were flying around related to the parentage of her daughters. Sophia had been ousted and effectively imprisoned. The Narishkin Romanovs now ruled the roost. And to top it all off, she was a widow with three young daughters. But Praskovia had survived. She'd kept her head down, which I think is sound advice in anyone's book. And she'd learned and she was determined that Yekaterina, Anna and little Praskovia would follow in her footsteps. So what did that mean in practice? Well, it meant two things. Firstly, Praskovia was no fool. She could see that Peter the Great was probably going to be in charge for the foreseeable future, and so she made sure that she was on excellent terms, both with the Tsar and his Norishkin relatives. And secondly, it meant that she was going to instill the same principles and behaviours into her daughters. Life was volatile, unpredictable, and full of pitfalls, and Yekaterina, Anna, and Praskovia Jr. would need to be above reproach, virtuous, and tough. And so Anna's childhood, whilst relatively safe and secure, and more of that in a minute, was disciplined and austere, with emphasis on thrift, charity, and religion, a snippet of French and German, and just a pinch of music and dancing. There's no mention anywhere of it being a happy time. And there was the added complication that Yekaterina was reputedly her mother's favourite. <laughs> Families, eh? The result of all of this was that, as she grew older, instead of becoming quiet, pious and obedient, Anna became headstrong, bad-tempered and obstinate. Anna's overall safety and security were provided by her uncle, or, to be precise, her half-uncle, Peter the Great. Now, Peter had been genuinely fond of his half-brother Ivan and was genuinely sympathetic to his condition. 
and this mindset was extended to his half-brother's family, first to Praskovia and then to her daughters. But Peter wasn't just carrying out his duties as an uncle for the fun of it. Nope, he had plans for Praskovia's daughters, and those plans were centred around his pro-Western philosophy and his need or ambition to integrate with the rest of the continent. And so it was agreed that the eldest daughters, Yekaterina and Anna, would marry foreign husbands. And strangely, it was the younger of the two, Anna, who got married first in 1710 to Frederick William, the Duke of Courland. Both the bride and groom were 17. It took another six years for Yekaterina's wedding to materialise, before finally in 1716 she was married off to the twice previously married Karl Leopold of Mecklenburg-Schwerin, and two years later, the daughter, Anna Leopoldovna, was born. We don't know how Anna felt about her soon-to-be husband, or her impending wedding, but I suspect she must have felt a tinge of excitement. She was leaving the suffocating atmosphere of her mother's house, and would soon be on her way to Courland, where she would be able to run her own household, and set her own agenda. Anna wanted, some say demanded, that her wedding day would be a grand affair. And Uncle Peter was happy to oblige. After all, this wasn't just a wedding. It was a state occasion, and the Tsar wanted everyone to see how Russia put on a show. He gave his niece a dowry of 200,000 rubles, and then made sure that everyone knew that he'd given his niece a dowry of 200,000 rubles. For this money was more than largesse. Russia was getting a semblance of control and influence over a semi-independent Polish duchy, even though the Tsar went to great lengths to explain that he was doing nothing of the sort. After the wedding, Duke Frederick William spent most of his time being lavishly entertained by Peter, and then in January 1711, he set off with his new wife to Courland. But he never reached his destination. Some 20 miles or so outside of St Petersburg, the Duke was taken ill, and within hours he was dead, either from a chill or fever, or, and I think that this is more likely, alcohol poisoning. In shock, but having consulted Peter a couple of days later, Anna continued her journey accompanied by her dead husband, to Courland's capital, Mittau, and there she would remain as Duchess for almost two decades. She would never marry again, and she would never have children. And as we know, during her tenure, she did relatively little, and left the day-to-day -day running of state affairs, first of all, to Count Peter Bestuzhev, and then when he was ousted by Menshikov, her latest lover, Ernst Bieron, kept the wheels turning. Her mother, Praskovia, died in 1723. There was the business with Menshikov, but apart from that, little else of any import happened. And in normal circumstances, Anna would have lived out the rest of her years in Courland, bored, listless and isolated, but to a certain extent, doing what she wanted, when she wanted. And yet, somehow, in May 1730, here she was in Moscow, the empress of all she surveyed. 
But Anna must have realised that there was a massive difference between fiddling around in a sleepy provincial backwater and running a massive, complex European empire. And to do the latter, she would need to set the tone and rhythm of her reign and keep a careful eye on both her own and Russia's enemies. And to do that, she would need friends, support, advice, and, I suppose what everyone really needs, luck. And the first three years of Anna's rule were lucky, in that, as per the reigns of Catherine I and Peter II, Russia in 1730 faced no internal or external threats, and this allowed her to slowly and methodically work through her intrigue, or, more precisely, it allowed others to slowly and methodically work through her intrigue, while she concentrated on other things. And we'll come to those a bit later. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Anna replaced the Supreme Privy Council with a cabinet made up of a much smaller group of ministers. Three, in fact the chameleon-like André Osterman, lucky old ex-Supreme Privy Councillor Gavriel Golovkin, and the man who'd rallied the guards to Anna's side, Alexei Sherkaski. Outside of the cabinet were three others, two who the Empress would use for specific jobs, and one who was her most trusted advisor and all-round guiding knight. First off, there was Andrei Ushakov. Now, he'd been one of those who Peter the Great had used to bring down his own son, Alexei, back in 1618. Andrei managed the interrogations and torture sessions and that kind of thing. Well, Anna decided to resurrect the secret office of investigation and thought that Ushakov had just the right experience and profile to head it up, which he did, and keep her informed, and then, when necessary, take the appropriate action when people stepped out of line, which he would. Secondly, there was Burkhard Christoph von Munich. Munich, who like Ostermann was a Russified German, had served in Peter the Great's armies back in the day. He was deemed to be a brilliant and effective military organiser, and Anna thought that he would be a useful person to have on board. And he was, and he would be. And the guiding light, another German who we've already met, the Empress's lover and confidant, and the man she really couldn't live without, Ernst Johann von Biron. Now, some historians, notably some Russian ones, have looked back at Anna's reign as a dark time, 
that was dominated by Germans, and in particular Biron. And in fact, this period is known today in Russia as the German yoke, or, and here goes, deep breath, the Bironov Shechina. Others, though, whilst appreciating that Biron did exert an undue degree of influence, point to the fact that there were two influential Russians at the top table, three including Anna, and also a whole swathe of Russian aristocrats and civil servants. And anyway, most of the bad stuff, or the dark arts, were Ushakov's responsibility. Anyway, all in all, not a bad start. Anna had assembled her team, and they could get on with running the country, whilst the Empress was busy enjoying herself. Anna's first move, literally, was to decamp from medieval Moscow to the modern western-facing St. Petersburg, and she did this for three reasons. Firstly, she disliked Moscow and distrusted its inhabitants. Secondly, she loved St. Petersburg and had plans for a spot of palace building. And then thirdly, Petersburg was a better fit for the high-level theme or direction that her reign was going to take, and that was to follow in her uncle's footsteps and continue along the path of westernisation. The task of managing the move and preparing St. Petersburg for the Empress's arrival was given to Munich, and he exceeded everyone's expectations, not just with his impressive grasp of logistics and detailed planning, but with the more elaborate touches, the triumphal arches and the firework displays. And in fact, so impressed was Anna that within the year she had promoted him to overall commander of the Russian army with the rank of field marshal. Anna had decided that Peter the Great's Winter Palace was just not that grand enough, and so she hired an Italian architect to start drawing up plans for a replacement. In the meantime, she moved into a large house next door to the old palace, and the Bierons, Ernst, his wife Meninia, and his son Peter, moved in with her. <laughs> Families, eh? So with everything settled at home, and the running of the empire, in a few, it has to be said, safe hands, what did Anna get up to all day? Well, she spent money and lots of it, and not just on palace renovations. There were carriages, dresses, and gambling at cards. But this was all a bit of a sideshow. What Anna really enjoyed doing was spending time with what can only be described as her personal human menagerie. A typical day would see the Empress rise early, sometimes at six, but never later than seven, take breakfast with the Bierons, meet her ministers, and then spend the rest of the morning hunting, which was either on horseback or involved Anna sitting at an open window, taking pot shots at crows with a gun. And then the rest of the day, according to Munich, was spent listening and chattering to fools. Now, before we get going on this section, you can probably tell I'm prevaricating, <laughs> just a quick note on sources. I'm again using Simon Seabag Montefiore's excellent The Romanovs, mainly because I haven't been able to find a single book that is solely about the Empress Anna, but also for its superb descriptive narrative. Pretty much every other source tells a similar story, though, one which, I have to say, I find pretty hard to believe. I always try to take a balanced approach, but I'm not sure that I can with what comes next. 
Anyway, here goes. I can't put it off any longer. So, there were a number of official fools, jesters, and other unfortunates that the Empress surrounded herself with. Her main companions were four old crones, one a giant, one a hunchback, one with no hands, and one with no legs. And Anna took great delight in arranging hair-pulling fights between the four of them. And then, when she grew tired of that, it was for time for a spot of dwarf throwing. And when that was over, her fool, the Jewish Da Costa, who'd served all of the Tsars since Peter the Great's time, would entertain Anna and her guests. However, what Anna really enjoyed doing was making fools out of members of the aristocracy, and one of them, in particular, seemed to be her favourite whipping boy. Mikhail Golitsyn not the ex-privy councillor, but the grandson of ex-regent Sophia's confidant Vasily, had made the mistake of falling in love with an Italian girl, converting to Roman Catholicism, and then marrying her. When Anna found out, via Ushikov, she ordered Galitsyn to abandon his wife and to serve at court, as her cupbearer and chief unofficial fool. And so, when he wasn't serving dr the drinks to everyone, Galitzin's speciality was to dress up as a chicken. Yes, a chicken. And spend hours clucking away to his and the Empress's heart's content. I mean, what would make someone do that? Fear, I suppose. But Anna must have really had it in for Galitzin because later in her reign she had him married off to one of her crones and she made them spend their wedding night in the middle of winter in a specially constructed ice palace, which the two only survived by huddling together under a single fur coat. She had one of her dwarves thrashed for complaining about being thrown, but then paid his medical bills and gave him a supply of wine. Anna was a large middle-aged woman who thought that she was younger and prettier than she actually was. She constantly demanded flattery and compliments, and she loved salacious or hurtful gossip. And to finish off, there were rumours of lesbian affairs with servant girls who were invited to spend the night with the Empress and who dared not refuse. So, and if true, these revelries must have been an absolute nightmare for all concerned, except Anna, of course, and were probably just as bad as Peter the Great's sessions with his jolly company, back in the day. At least at Peter's parties, though, you could have perhaps tried to blot it all out by drinking copious amounts of alcohol. In fact, you would have been expected to. But with Anna's parties, that wasn't an option. The Empress didn't drink, and she frowned upon anyone else drinking too much. And so these events with Anna and her chums resembled the not-so-jolly company. So, was Anna a spiteful, manipulative bully, or did she use her entertaining to keep everyone on their toes? Or was everything that I've just mentioned a hatchet job, arranged to ruin the Empress's reputation and legacy? I'll leave that one hanging for the time being, because now it's time to get on to more solid ground and take a look at what else had been going on, both in Russia and across the rest of Europe. And first off, out in Russia's Far East, there had been some exploring going on. The Dane, Vitus Bering, who had previously served in the Russian Navy, 
had led an expedition to the settlement of Okhtosh and from there to the Kamchatka Peninsula. And based upon his findings in 1731, Anna ordered the establishment of the Russian Pacific Fleet. In 1732, the Bering Straits that divided, and still do, Asia and North America, were crossed for the first time by Europeans. Nearer to home, Persia and the Ottoman Empire were at war. In Europe, trade with the Far East had stepped up a gear with Sweden and Denmark, joining France, Great Britain and the Netherlands with the establishment of their own Asian trading companies. In Prussia, there had been a bit of a scene when Prince Frederick of Prussia, the eldest son of King Frederick William and the future Frederick the Great, attempted to flee to Great Britain with his close friend Hans Hermann von Katter. Unfortunately, they were caught, von Katter was executed, Prince Frederick was made to watch, and then he was in prison for a year until his father forgave him. Everywhere else had been pretty quiet since the end of the War of the Spanish Succession in 1715 and the Great Northern War in 1721. But all of that was about to change, because Augustus II, or the Strong, of Poland and Saxony was ill. Bravely ill, in fact. And across Europe, factions were starting to be formed, and knives were being sharpened. The War of the Polish Succession was about to begin. On the home front, Anna would also be pondering the word succession. In February 1733, she celebrated her 40th birthday. She was single and childless, and no one knew who the empress had in mind to be the next ruler of Russia. There were limited options, but one thing was for certain. Anna would be doing all she could to make sure that a certain Elizabeth Petrovna got nowhere near the throne. But all of that, I'm afraid, will have to wait. So until next time, dear listeners, chins up, heads down, look after yourselves, and most importantly, stay safe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.